Dr. Limscombe, thank you very much for joining us to talk about uh, this wonderful book you've written and these fantastic four scholars. Um, I'm going to start with a question that I'm sure you've answered before. How did your interest in these four women evolve? Uh, what, what's the origin story for the book? Sure. Well, uh, let me say first, thanks for having me on uh, your podcast. Um, what drew me to them? I was from early on in my graduate school training uh, in the late 90s, uh, an appreciative reader of all four of them. My graduate advisor, David Solomon, uh, in the first contemporary ethical theory survey course I ever took, responsible for introducing me to Anscombe and Foote and Murdoch. And later on, he was the one who suggested too, in light of some interests of mine, I think you should read Mary Midgley too. Uh, so I owe David Solomon uh, for putting me onto them, but I, he put me onto lots of people and I didn't latch onto all of them the way I did to these four. They are unusually unconfined thinkers, contemporary philosophy is so frequently scholastic. <laughs> I, I mean that in the straightforward medieval sense that it's about commentaries on commentaries mm -hmm. and very much about honing the, uh, the outer edge of uh, some technical discussion or other uh, that you have to be pretty deeply initiated in order to understand. And these women were always talking about larger matters in a way that was invitational. They're brilliant stylists, all of them, in a way that I associate with mid-20th century Oxford thinkers, and uh, that certainly helped. But in different ways, I found each of them really instructive and each of them really inviting. And so when in David's basement, staying overnight with him on my way through the Midwest, I came across Mary Midgley's memoir, uh, The Owl of Minerva and saw her talking about how closely connected their stories were. I thought, oh, there should be a book about this. And, and you stepped up to write it. And, and you met Midgley, am I correct in saying that? At I did, yeah, she was very generous. I wrote to her utterly out of the blue through her publisher. I wrote to Rutledge saying, could you pass this letter along to Mary Midgley? Uh, after I'd had the idea, oh, could there be a project here? And uh, after a month or so, it was a while in the Rutledge offices, but I got this uh, lovely email back from her saying, oh, please come up and visit me and I'll feed you lunch. That's what I do for anybody who comes and visits me. So that was the start of uh, a friendship that I wish could have been closer even than it was, but uh, only when I happened to be in the UK. But uh, I got to visit her several times. Yeah. And, and um, she was the, the last living member of this cohort. When, when did Midgley pass away? 2018, so, uh, yeah. just after her 99th birthday in September of, uh, of uh, 2018. Remarkable. Maybe starting at, um, at the wrong end here, but I, I was curious, what is this, how would you describe the standing of these four scholars in the academy today? You know, I was, I was especially interested in, um, reading the degree to which uh, Murdoch maybe didn't see herself as a, a philosopher, professional philosopher in the way that maybe Foote did. Um, she as a, uh, in Mur Murdoch's case, you know, I sort of think of her as a, um, 
a, a Platonist, right? An unabashed Platonist in some regards, and which seems to kind of certainly stand outside of uh, contemporary philosophy. And, and maybe you can begin with that, or, or maybe it might be better to work our way towards that, because the other interesting thing I wanted to ask, um, the other thing that interested me was you, you described what you called the Dawkins sublime, uh, mm -hmm. and in the way we might think of these four thinkers as positioned against that. Um, maybe let's do that. Maybe start, start with what, what did you, what were you trying to get at with the Dawkins sublime and, and how did, how did these four women carve out uh, a space different from, from that consensus? Okay. Yeah. By the Dawkins sublime, I mean, an attitude that develops, especially in the wake of the Romantic period. Um, Iris Murdoch is the first person who puts her finger on this in some of her essays, that there is in late modern culture, um, an ideal of heroically staring down the meaninglessness of it all, um, the abyss of valuelessness, um, a certain conception of the world as a cold place, as a place without meaning or direction, uh, as a place without value, and then surreptitiously, not quite consistently, holding up as especially valuable, especially heroic, especially courageous, um, a really blunt, really harrowing depiction of that condition of valuelessness, uh, of meaninglessness, and a kind of self-congratulation at being there. Mm -hmm. um, so you can see this in a number of um, late modern and contemporary science writers, but also others too. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the locus classicus is um, Matthew Arnold uh, in his poem on Dover Beach, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, he says that the sea of faith was once full, but now we just hear these sort of the noise of the breakers rolling in. Long and roar. Yeah, it's uh, it's nothing but that, yeah. and uh, that is a certain kind of valorization of how to look at, how to feel about our position vis-a-vis -a, -vis a picture of the universe. Mm -hmm. the picture of the universe goes further back, but the picture of the universe as meaningless, as valueless, has, of course, massive implications for ethics. And one unifying uh, thread across the work of these four women is that all of them rejected that picture. All of them said, no, we can continue to speak in factive, uh, in truth-seeking ways um, about value and meaning. Which I think speaks to that uh, their appeal, right? That you're you're reading something that feels as if it it can it can change your life, right? That it's going to speak to your life uh, in some important way. Mm -hmm. If but, you're not satisfied with, I, yeah. look, there's an existential pull. Uh, to the Dawkins sublime, or it could not have spread mm -hmm. uh, uh, culturally the way that it has, that there is something invitational about congratulating yourself at having seen through how bleak things are, seen to the icy core, and being bold enough, man enough, I think there's a gendered element right. to this, yeah. to face it down. Um, 
but it means that ethics is just something we make up individually or collectively, uh, something to tell ourselves and to organize our lives by, but nothing we can get right or wrong, nothing we can do better or worse at. And so I think there's something hopeless about it. And there is an inspiration then to these women saying, well, what if you came at these problems in this way or that way? And they have differences among them, but all of them in different ways say, well, don't give up so quickly. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you uh, briefly alluded to kind of the gendered uh, way in which that sometimes is framed, which then mm -hmm. brings to mind this question of, of where these women are situated in early 20th century uh, Oxford, in early 20th century ac academic culture, um, the opportunity that is afforded to them perhaps by the, by the war. So tell us a little bit about, for, for those who, who have no background in sort of Oxford culture, academic culture, um, who may just think, oh, they were brilliant, of course they were going to succeed, but, but there, were, there were challenges and, and they uh, faced unique situations and maybe opportunities Tell us a little bit about that milieu and, and how they, they lived and navigated it. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is how I uh, got Oxford to pick up the book, is uh, this fact about how they get their start. Um, uh, Mary Midgley highlights this in her memoir. She was the first person who made me aware of it, that Oxford empties out of young men right uh, at the outset of the Second World War. All these women are born 1919, 1920, uh, right at the end of the First World War, which means they're all just university age at the moment when the next war comes or the old war breaks out, depending how you think of that history. And so everybody except some conscientious objectors, some disabled young men, some people too old to serve, is called away within a very short window and the mentorship that's there and the lecture halls and the seminars that are there are left to these and other women in a way that they hadn't been. Um, sometimes there was overt prejudice uh, that they faced as undergraduates and later on, uh, but I think a lot of the sexism of the time was thoughtless. Uh, reflected in something like the name of the discussion group in the late 1930s uh, that these women's uh, best tutor belonged to, the Brethren, mm -hmm. <laughs> gathering of some of the top philosophers of Oxford. And of course, it would be a man's club. Mm -hmm. um, and the picture in any Don's mind uh, going into the 1940s of a up-and-coming philosopher would have been some young man. Um, not because they were trying to exclude, but because the pictures come from those that we see and have met. Uh, and so this tremendous opportunity opens up and they have a lot of interaction with one another, crossing uh, in and out of one another's paths uh, as undergraduates, and they get a kind of close mentoring that I think they would not have gotten a few years earlier. It, it matters differently for different ones of them. Elizabeth Anscombe was torturing herself about philosophical problems from her late teenage years. I think she would have ended up a philosopher no matter what. But for the other three, the mentoring made all the difference. 
when I think of Amscom, I think I, I first encountered her as uh, as someone deeply connected with Wittgenstein's work uh, as, a, as a translator, right? An early translator. She was yes. the executor, uh, if I'm not mistaken, of, of Wittgenstein's work. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about, you know, I think some of our listeners would know Wittgenstein as an extremely important 20th century philosopher. Um, so uh, here is this deeply Catholic uh, philosopher in, in, in Anscom. Um, what was her relationship to Wittgenstein? Just give us a little bit of that of that background. Uh, I know that that's a book in itself, right? So, but what's yeah, what's the sketch of that? Yeah, she becomes acquainted with him uh, in the early 1940s, um, right around the time that she leaves Oxford and goes up and uh, begins attending his lectures and discussions uh, at Cambridge where he was, and pretty quickly becomes part of his circle. She finds in him just what she was looking for, someone who was speaking to some of the philosophical problems that bothered her most, mm. uh, that she was the kind, as I say, she was a born philosopher. She was the kind of student who got deeply hung up on tormented by problems about perception and knowledge and causation. And Wittgenstein had a special genius uh, coming out of his own background, having been tormented by these kinds of questions. He had a special genius for seeing how unnoticed assumptions could generate these problems or could make them seem insoluble. Mm -hmm. uh, and he practiced first on himself, and then on students who came to him, a kind of therapy uh, as, uh, uh, as he represented it, helping people to see their way past. Uh, well, now I'm gonna mix my metaphor here. Um, I think I want a plumbing metaphor uh, <laughs> that people would get these kinks in their thought and he could help straighten them out for them. And so Anscom found this liberating mm -hmm. um and as she said in a uh, a journal that she uh, later put together of reminiscences about wittgenstein for a time i was besotted with him that everything he said seemed true to me mm -hmm. just because he said it and eventually she moves past this uh to a more mature back and forth yeah. uh, interaction with him but he does select her as one of his three executors as the principal translator of his major uh, late work, The Philosophical Investigations, which for generations people have quoted as if they were quoting straight from Wittgenstein when what they're quoting is, is Anscom. Right, he right. helped connect her in Austria with his family and friends so that she could go and get Austrian German in her head to get as clear a sense as possible of where his language is coming from. So it's a really, really close and profound working relationship that you know she it it's propulsive for her toward her later work but it was quite a while before she could find her own voice because even when she learned to criticize him at all she uh was so impressed with what he'd done and wasn't sure uh whether what she had to say uh was good enough in comparison yeah I, just as an aside, I mean, it is interesting. I think sometimes we may have a, a caricature of, of philosophy being a very solitary 
activity or a very abstract activity. Um, but then to be reminded of these very human relationships in the background that are operating sometimes in difficult to tease out ways. Um, I, I, I think of the complex relationship between Hannah Arendt's work and, and Martin Heidegger. And of course, that's a very kind of scandalous, you know, uh, you know uh, I'm not sure what the right adjective is for it. It's a little different than what you're describing, but nonetheless, right, that there's this personal element that and comes into the thinking. And I think it's just good to re recall that or be aware of that. Um, yes. You know, yeah. And, and you could say that the whole book, uh, I mean, I have made it about ideas and about the emergence of alternatives to some of the dominant framings and ideas of the late modern world uh, that emerge out of these women's work, but also um, it's about how their relationships with one another and with others uh, made it possible for them to think as they did. Right. I think of that line at the beginning of Alan Jacobs, How to Think, where he says, we don't think alone. We just don't. Right. Uh, we uh, do a lot of the most important setting up of our thoughts by choosing or finding good conversation partners. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so on that note, uh, there's one very important conversation partner for them, um, a philosopher by the name of McKinnon, uh, who seems to play a, a pretty pivotal role um, for the, the other three, you know, Anscombe, but then, um, you know, Foote and Midgley um, and Murdoch seem to have unique relationships with, with McKinnon. Who was he? How did he fit into their story? Well, yeah. Sure. He's better known these days as a theologian than as a philosopher. He was a tutor to, among others, uh, Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, um, and lots of major second half of the 20th century uh, British theologians. But uh, he was a philosopher before he was a theologian, and he's part of that group that includes J.L. Austin and A.J. Ayer and Isaiah Berlin. Uh, all of these top Oxford philosophers in the 30s just getting ready for their careers to launch. Mm -hmm. uh, he obviously made quite an impression on his contemporaries. So he's only a little bit older than my subjects. Mm -hmm. uh, they reported being surprised later on to realize, oh, he was just a few years older than us. He seemed like he was in this other world, this other category uh, as our mentor. Mm -hmm. makes sense. You put your mentors on pedestals. You don't think of them as being close to your own age, but, uh, but he was only maybe uh, five years older uh, than the women he was teaching. Uh, he uh, was deeply, deeply eccentric. Uh, there are so many stories about him. Midgley hypothesizes that maybe he had something like Tourette's, mm -hmm. uh, that he would do things like uh, go into the table at uh, uh, conferences and bite people or you know, roll around on the floor, or the, he seems genuinely eccentric, like he would just lose track of those around him and be gripped by uh, certain compulsive gestures, uh, but capable of a kind of digging into the material that he was studying with others mm -hmm. of being on an intellectual quest together in a way that was utterly inspiring uh, to these women who were assigned to him during the war as uh, as pupils. Mm -hmm. uh, that Mary Midgley tells this story of 
McKinnon giving her an hour's tutorial, more than an hour's tutorial on Kant uh, on a particular day and saying at the end, we haven't gotten to the bottom of this. Come back on Thursday. Mm -hmm. And McKinnon during wartime, he was fire watching at night. Mm. Uh, he was taking on an enormous load of pupils, a number of uh, officer, junior officers who were coming for short courses uh, uh, during the war as part of their officer training. And he's teaching far too many people and the generosity and the capacity to get lost in these questions and to take them with a kind of existential seriousness that I think goes with his being a Christian theologian and a Christian theologian particularly focused on evil at a time when evil was so present and uh, undeniable around them that his seriousness, his investment in them uh, made all of them want to be like him or to uh, to be directed uh, in ways that he would approve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So moving the narrative a little bit forward, um, as they enter into the, 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 the work of philosophy, um, what kind of environment do they step into? And I, and I guess part of what I'm, I'm trying to get at here is that they, I, before reading your book, I, one association that kind of linked at least three of these um, thinkers in my mind was virtue ethics, uh, mm -hmm. a particular way of thinking about the ethical life. Um, tell us a little bit about that, because I know that coming to the end, I, I learned in your book that uh, Flip a Foot at least had a, uh, an essay she was working on mm -hmm. that seems to take that at least was became critical of that label of virtue ethic. But how did how did they? My, my sense is that they, especially Anscombe, uh, resuscitated this view of the ethical life um, mm -hmm. in, in a time where it was deeply neglected. Is that fair? Right. They're trying to find a way to all of them in different ways to reconnect uh, ethics with the world, mm -hmm. and Anscombe who is a devout Catholic and who knows, she doesn't write about this, but she knows Aquinas maybe as well as any scholar of her generation and then doesn't talk about him because she finds that talking about him causes people to react in unconstructive ways. Mm -hmm. But uh, I know from a remark that her daughter puts in the introduction of one of her uh, collections of uh, essays uh, that uh, Anscombe, when she was trying to figure out what to say about some philosophical problem, would often ask, now, where would Thomas have talked about something like this um, and look there for instruction? So she's immersed in this. Mm -hmm. And so she knows Aristotle's and Aquinas's way of thinking about how ethics connects to the world, that you start with reflections on the kind of species uh, that we are, uh, our needs, the conditions on our flourishing, to use a word that Anscombe introduces uh, into moral philosophy discussions. What, what are the circumstances? What are the conditions on which we pursue our characteristically human activities and succeed at them? What does it take for that? And Aristotle 
and Aquinas after him say, okay, if we've got this picture of what human happiness or success looks like grounded in all kinds of biological and anthropological and psychological observations about the human animal, then we can think about the traits that facilitate or frustrate our pursuit of that flourishing, that happiness, um, our doing characteristically human things in community with other human beings. What does it take? And one of the main things that it takes is this suite of acquired habits, of attributes. And those would be the virtues and their contraries would be the vices. Um, Anscombe herself was impressed with this way of thinking, but as a Christian, she thought of it as subordinate to, as ancillary to an account of God's law. Um, but maybe the best that secular thought could offer uh, in ethics. For Philippa Foote, who apprenticed herself to Anscombe as uh, her colleague at Somerville College, Oxford, and who was a little in awe uh, of Anscombe and was an atheist, this idea of virtue and vice uh, was exactly what she was looking for as a way of connecting ethics with the world, that it's a matter of facts, what kinds of creatures we are, what our needs are, what kinds of activities and social uh, uh, constellations are characteristic of human beings. And it can be a matter of factual investigation, what kinds of traits uh, best equip us for furthering those pursuits. And so Foot laid hold of this. And when late in her career, she says, oh, I'm uncomfortable with this movement that's gotten going of virtue ethics. She thought that people had forgotten that the whole point of virtue was that it facilitated flourishing, was that it facilitated human happiness. Uh, she thought that virtue had become in the writings of some contemporary philosophers, the grounding itself of ethics and she thought, no, that's not right. A virtue is like physical strength and having good friends and being in a politically free society. It's one among many things that helps us to live rich human lives. And that should be the grounding, not virtues. Mm -hmm. This is um, a question just born of my, out of my own interests. Um, and I can't remember if you touch on it in the book or not, but um, I, Alistair McIntyre has kind of been important in my own thinking. Is there is there a line, uh, an inter intellectual line of influence from McIntyre back to to Anscombe, say, or some of the Oh yes, things? yeah, yeah. And if you um, if you go back to After Virtue, after we're done talking, yeah. you'll see there's a there's an end note in After Virtue when he's doing his um, uh, history. Uh, of uh, modern moral thought leading up to what he sees as the crisis mm -hmm. of, uh, the, uh, of the late modern period. He says, my story here is deeply indebted to, in some ways different, but deeply indebted to the one told by Elizabeth Anscombe in her famous mm -hmm. groundbreaking article, Modern Moral Philosophy. Yeah. Because Anscombe says there that we have given up on the contexts that make uh, law talk in ethics intelligible. Mm -hmm. And so if we're not going to claim the things that traditional Christians and Muslims and Jews claimed uh, about God and God's purposes, 
uh, that we should really stop talking as if ethics was a legal system about duties and obligations. And instead, uh, if we have to be secularists, uh, we should turn to Aristotle, uh, that that would be a more constructive direction to go. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I don't know that I would. When I first read McIntyre, I don't know that I was aware at that point of Anscombe and might not have registered. But yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, he was um, her student. Um, I mean, in the way that people in, in Oxford at this time and even since have lots of mentor yeah. figures, but she was one of his. Yeah, fascinating. Maybe let's talk a little bit about the trajectory that their individuals, individual careers take. Um, and Maybe with Murdoch. Murdoch, I think, may, I don't know if this is fair to say or not. So Anscombe, I think of her as, as the most prominent philosopher, right? That, that, that even if you're not necessarily familiar with um, her work specifically, it's a name you would maybe know. Uh, yeah. I wonder Anscombe. How many, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and then I wonder how many people know Murdoch primarily as a novelist um, rather than as a philosopher. Um, how did the, those two... Um, both the, the philosophical and and the artistic work, the, the novelistic work, how do they intersect in Murdoch's career? How do you see them, you know, playing together? Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's a good point uh, you make about that two of these women are very much their careers happen within the academy. And uh, Murdoch leaves the academy behind. She can never leave philosophy behind. Right. Uh, she keeps returning to these questions. One of the things she's working on just before she begins to descend into uh, uh, dementia uh, in the 1990s is a book on Heidegger. Mm -hmm. uh, she'd be thinking about her whole life. Um, she disowned in many interviews, uh, disclaimed any uh, connection between her fiction and her philosophy and everybody who's read both finds this completely implausible um i think the explanation in the book i say the explanation for this is that philosophy in the 1950s uh during the decade that she was working at saint anne's college uh in oxford philosophy had this somewhat narrow definition, this very specific meaning, a certain kind of linguistic analysis. Um, and that wasn't her uh, at all. Uh, she was a person who was constantly reflecting on how large controlling ideas of our times uh, can be understood against a background of larger cultural and historical movements. And this kind of elusiveness, uh, this visionary quality in her work made her work not respectable mm -hmm. uh, when she was within Oxford. And so she leaves, and she leaves for a variety of reasons, but this is one of them. Um, but in her novels, we see people who are failing or succeeding humanly in exactly the ways that she explores in her philosophical writings, that some of the principal tenets of Murdoch's writings on ethics are that we are prone to self-consoling fantasies, that our desire to think well of ourselves, um, 
causes us to misinterpret other people and the situations we're in and the, the discipline that is always necessary for us if we're going to live good human lives is a kind of unselfing in which we learn to see truly, to see not through the gauze of self-concern, but to see more starkly um, and but also in some ways more charitably uh, other people and the circumstances of our lives and our world. Um, and this is constantly the situation of the subjects of her novels who are full of self-imposed illusions and uh, obsessions that they've nurtured in themselves because they feel good uh, mm -hmm. and who do a lot of damage uh, to themselves and people around them because of these fantasies. So I think the connections are deep there, but it wasn't what her contemporaries and colleagues would have called philosophy. And she internalized that judgment in a way that's kind of sad. Yeah, yeah. Um, Midge, Midgley is the other that doesn't have a standard academic philosophical career. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, her story is very inspiring in some respects. She steps away, raises a family, only mm -hmm. comes back to philosophy later in life. Um, we haven't talked too much about it. Tell, tell us about her. What is her, her story as she leaves university and, that, and her path takes that, that detour, as it were? Mm -hmm. Yeah, until she gets married to Jeff Midgley, who's a philosopher of language of the typical and at that time applauded sword. He's very good uh, mm -hmm. at what he does. Um, she was on a track uh, towards a pretty typical academic career. But she and Jeff talk together about what they're going to do uh, as soon as they get married, that there was an offer for both of them at uh, Reading University where she is. And there was a likely possibility. Uh, it was an era of expansion, a likely possibility of her getting hired on alongside Jeff at uh, uh, what was then King's College, uh, Newcastle. And sort of satellite of the University of Durham um, and later on becomes its own university at Newcastle. Um, but they decide she's going to stay home and raise the boys. And already from her childhood, from her university and post-university days, Midgley's genius was for synthesis, was for reading around in areas outside of uh, what would typically be thought of as philosophy and for finding how to relate uh, different bodies of discourse. Uh, she was a reader of history and psychology and early in her children's, uh, uh, in her son's growing years, she becomes aware of this new sub-discipline in biology of uh, animal behavior studies, ethology and becomes just captivated with this, reads everything she can get her hands on, uh, the big theories and the detailed studies of ants and red deer and, uh, and everything. And she thinks there are connections between some of the work that I know that my old university friends, Anscombe and Foote, are doing at Oxford and 
this new kind of situated thinking about other species besides human beings. And so her intelligent observations of her boys on the hearthrug and what she's reading about all of these other species comes together after a kind of silent decade um, when she, you know, finally sends the last of them off to secondary school and begins picking up some teaching again. And almost the first thing she does as a teacher is takes on a night course uh, for adult learners teaching about human nature and the nature of other animals. And this propels her toward her first book, which comes out almost at the end of her 19, almost at the end of her uh, 50s, at the end of the 1970s, uh, Beast and Man. And first of, I think, 16 books she publishes from that point. So she's just on input, on input, on input. And then when she figures out what she wants to say, uh, she becomes one of the most prominent public intellectuals of the 80s and 90s. Let me ask you, this, this may be a difficult question to ask. Um, so if, if our readers are as they should be, or excuse me, I keep saying readers, our listeners are as they should be uh, rightly fascinated. And after they read your book and they want to follow up with some of these thinkers, maybe let's back, backtrack a little bit. Um, you mentioned Beast and Man by Midgley. Um, what, what would be, so if somebody asked you, what's a good entry point for Midgley, right? What's the book that, that I'd want to pick up. And I, I know I get asked this about different things and it's hard to answer because there's so many factors sometimes, but do you have, do you have a, a, a recommendation for Midgley? Um, I think Beast and Man is a, is a good book. Yeah. It's a book that was under the influence of its publisher, Cornell University Press, in ways that made it a little distended mm. <laughs> um, by the end. It's it's larger than she meant it to be um, because they said, you need to comment on E.O. Wilson's sociobiology, which had just come out. Mm. And so she put in this whole section on that, which today I think uh, distracts somewhat from the main through line of argument. I might suggest that someone new to Midgley pick up her book, Wickedness, uh, in which she reflects on some of the central theses of Beast and Man about how, look, we've got all of these different impulses uh, that are bequeathed to us by our evolutionary history. And the task for human beings is finding ways to integrate these impulses and not to simply condemn or flee from any of them. Mm. Well, that's a thought that leads on to questions about, well, then what is human badness? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she has uh, some really interesting things to say about that in a book that was much more under her editorial control. Uh, and so I think wickedness both answers some questions that any reader of Beast and Man is likely to have and is more tightly focused uh, while also enabling people to get some of the central ideas of Beast and Man. Yeah. When I, when I think of Midgley, I also think of uh, some of work kind of, uh, I don't know if this is the best way of putting it, but combating scientism, or yes. com combating a, a certain, what, what's the, is there's a book, um, Myth and Science, or what, what am I searching for there, right? There's uh, what title? Oh, myth, kind of, there's Myths We Live By, I think, yeah, that's right, that's right. Uh, is one of her collections of essays. Uh -huh. um, a little more book-like is, uh, uh, a book is um, one of hers called uh, Science as Salvation okay, yeah. um, and uh, Evolution as, as Religion. Yeah. 
these are um, these are titles that one of those I'm forgetting which now is her Gifford lectures, um, and she's a believer in uh, the broad outlines of Darwin's account of human origins. Um, and yet she sees that a kind of significance is being given to this uh, by other thinkers that she thinks it can't bear and that involves distortions mm -hmm. of Darwin's ideas. So she, uh, this is a kind of second stream of her authorship, the ethics stream of her authorship in which she's thinking about how to understand our nature and what it means to integrate it successfully. And then also, yeah, this critique of certain misuses as she saw them of the science that she loved and was deeply immersed in. Right, right. Um, backtracking to Murdoch, um, and I think maybe Murdoch's a little bit more accessible um, in some respects because she has her novels, but if, if we, uh, I don't know if you have a favorite for novels, feel free to mention that, but in, in, in her other work, uh, I think of Sovereignty of the Good as being perhaps the most famous of, of her, where it's a collection of lectures. Um, what, where would you point readers to for, for Murdoch? Oh, that is a good one to begin with if we're talking about her philosophy. Yeah. Um, a little larger, but containing some marvelous work is the collection that Peter Conradi, her biographer, edited called Existentialists and Mystics. Hmm. Um, and that contains, for instance, uh, an essay called Vision and Choice and Morality, uh, which uh, is really instructive and uh, maybe a better programmatic statement of hmm. uh, some of her philosophical uh, concerns uh, than any of the essays in The Sovereignty of Good. But The Sovereignty of Good, as my undergraduate mentor, John Hare, said to me once has this marvelous quality of being equally inviting to non-academic and academic readers right. um, and uh, there are passages in it about losing one's self-preoccupation through suddenly catching uh, a, a view of a hovering kestrel or this story she tells about a mother-in-law who works to try to understand her daughter-in-law differently mm -hmm. uh, that people have found inspiring uh, yeah. for yeah. decades now. Right, right, definitely. I, I, I've always laughed in reading the book. There is a footnote in there, isn't there, about how she finds Heidegger incomprehensible, uh, which then, you know, uh, it makes me admire her long-term project to understand Heidegger all the more. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Anscombe and, and Foote are the are, are the, you know, more uh, obviously uh, academically philosophical. Um, the title for interested readers of Anscombe's um, essay on virtue ethics, right? This this uh, foundational, this urtext of the modern virtue, what is the full title? The title is Modern Moral Philosophy. Right, um, okay. And, you know, it, it, it's one of these essays that's so famous that it's possible uh, pretty easily to find the text online. But if somebody wanted to buy a book, of Anscombe's essays, particularly with an eye to her thoughts on ethics. Mm -hmm. um, and her career went all over the place. Ethics was kind of just one line among many for her. But uh, the third volume of her collected papers uh, published by the University of Minnesota Press uh, and in written by Blackwell's 
uh, contains modern moral philosophy, contains some of her writings on the ethics of warfare, which have been enormously influential. Mm -hmm. um, and her pamphlet uh, included among them that she published after Oxford gave an honorary degree to Harry Truman mm -hmm. uh, over her protest. And so she puts out this pamphlet explaining why she objected uh, to Truman's degree. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's in there. Uh, a lot of uh, terrific, terrific work is in that collection. She's, she has a remarkable life uh, and, and, and such an active life, right? She's is it arrested twice uh, for anti-abortion protests, yeah. I mean, runs against the grain of academic culture in very interesting ways that seem to require an immense amount of courage. Um, so yeah, really interesting figure. Um, for for foot, my I confess I, I my only encounter with foot. I used to use a reader that she edited uh, on on ethics, mm -hmm. and so I didn't know her work directly. Where where might be a good place to start with with foot? What is she best known for? Yeah, well, several things. She's probably most famous for a little essay she published in the late nineteen sixties uh, on abortion called uh, uh, The Problem of Abortion and the Doctrine of Double Effect. I'm, I'm not sure I'm getting that mm -hmm. word for word exact. But in that essay, she introduces a thought experiment about a trolley car running out of control mm -hmm. that can be directed onto various right. tracks. Right. And this is like an industry now. Yeah. Uh, it shows right. up in sitcoms and all over the place. Yeah. Uh, so that that's probably actually the most famous thing that she ever wrote. Um, she's more of a philosophical essayist mm -hmm. than a writer of books. Her only monograph comes out um, uh, roughly on her 80th birthday. Um, and it, it took her her whole career to get to the point where she had even this one slim integrated book in her. She was the most conventional uh, in terms of this, the style of her writing, uh, the mm -hmm. kinds of projects that she took on of any of these four. Yeah. Um, engaging with uh, others in her discipline, arguing back and forth with them. And uh, so she tends to write essays rather than rather than books. And but they're good essay collections, and she has a really lively style. And so um, her collection Virtues and Vices, mm -hmm. and the title essay of that, I think it came out in like 1976, 77. And the title essay of that collection of Virtues and Vices um, is a really good introduction to how she thinks of the significance of these concepts. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it contains the abortion essay. And then she's got a later collection uh, that she brought out called Moral Dilemmas, uh, which has essays on art and Nietzsche and all sorts of things. Some of our listeners, I think, they, they may know of a famous episode in Anscombe's career uh, involving C.S. Lewis. Mm. So Lewis and, and Anscombe famously debate um, the, the question of miracles, I believe it is, right? Mm. Uh, the way I've, I've often heard that presented is that this was a devastating critique uh, for Lewis personally, um, that it changes the, tr the, the trajectory of his own writing and his own uh, career. Uh, I don't know the degree to, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure the degree to which I, you know, by that interpretation, but um, how did, how did Anscombe think about that encounter? I mean, what do we know from her perspective of, of, of that event? 
She kept coming back to it, interestingly, in the introduction to one of the other volumes. She had three volumes of collected essays that she brought out in 1981. And in the introduction to one of those volumes that contained her response to Lewis, she says, um, this was the first piece of purely philosophical writing that I published. Uh, and uh, it generated a lot of stir. She sort of notices the fact that it's still much talked about that event. Um, she says, looking back on it, uh, I think I was making appropriate criticisms of Lewis's, uh, a certain chapter of his book on miracles. Um, but she says, my criticisms, well, technically correct, uh, don't seem to me to show a recognition of the depth of the problem that he was dealing with. Mm. Um, and she speaks admiringly of the second edition of Miracles that came out in 1960, uh, where he returns to this in light of her criticism and tries to rework it. She says that he seemed to her to be wrestling with the problem in a way that back in 1948, uh, when they debated that she wasn't, that she was right about some sloppiness in his first edition. These were criticisms that it seemed to her necessary to make. But this is the thing about Anscombe. Um, Philippa Foote, in a um, uh, in a talk in a interview she gave on the BBC after Anscombe's death, uh, says uh, that. Anscombe was always impatient with anyone seeking a quick fix to a philosophical problem, that anybody who wanted to be clever and to not deal with what was hard and maybe insoluble in a philosophical problem earned her scorn. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we see that in Anscombe's ongoing and delayed reaction to the Lewis debate, mm -hmm. that she was an enormously acute philosopher who was bothered initially by how slick and glib and polished and made for radio mm -hmm. uh, Lewis's presentation was. Mm -hmm. But then she really admired the way that Lewis went back to and went on thinking about the problem. Mm -hmm. And she looked back at her own work with dissatisfaction and kept thinking about this problem of how we can understand the causation of our own thoughts and what that has to do with their validity. She went on thinking about that her whole career. I mean, that's a remarkable model, just apart from the content, right? That model of, of, of wanting to continue to think, recognizing the depths, being self-critical, uh, mm -hmm. pushing for, for depth of thought as opposed to the glibness. Um, may, may we all aspire to, to such virtues. Yeah. Um, so, Thank you very much, uh, Ben. This is this is wonderful, and I I, I hope it entices our listeners to uh, to pick up your book. Uh, there'll be a link to it uh, in the um, show notes, I guess we say for podcasts, uh, and and then even beyond that, as I, I'm sure will be your wish, that they would pick up some of the work of these uh, wonderful thinkers. I'll, I'll say that I, I'm tempted to put some of these on our um, possible reading group slots for for our next semester. Um, and uh, one last, uh, what, what are, tell us a little bit about your work. Uh, where do you, where do you see it going from here? Do you have any projects unfolding right now? Or are you just kind of uh, glad to have moved on beyond this one at the moment? It's going to be, I mean, this was 12 years uh, that I was working on this. 
And so I think given that I work at a little Christian liberal arts college and am deeply invested in the honors program there, uh, that any next project is likely to be slow emerging. But I have been thinking about something that I guess I'll tease here. Um, one of the things I came across in the course of working on this book that interested me greatly was how much all four of these women were on the BBC. Hmm. Uh, the BBC third program was this highbrow channel uh, that the BBC ran more or less as a public service, uh, invested in it out of all proportion uh, to the listenership that they were generating. But not only these four, but all of the major philosophers of the time were on the BBC or sought after mm -hmm. uh, to go on uh, on broadcast radio. And I think there's a story to be told that would involve C.S. Lewis again. Yeah. And many of the great personalities of this mid-century period about philosophy on the air. Mm -hmm. um, about the motivations that led to the corporation investing so much in promoting philosophy and thinking of this as something that the educated public should be introduced to, mm -hmm. even as it became somewhat arcane uh, mm -hmm. in its concerns and approach, and some of the ways in which uh, philosophy was developed through these on-air talks and dialogues, and how it came apart. Uh, shortly after 1960, under the pressures of deep cultural transformations. And um, yeah, I'd like to dig more into that. I don't know what uh, the through line is there, but the cast of characters is marvelous. And as someone who sometimes laments that philosophy doesn't have as public a role uh, in shaping conversations as it might, I'd like to figure out what happened there. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, that's, I'd look forward to, to engaging with that story. There's a, uh, I'm trying to think of it's, it's behind me on the shelf, but I, I have a book, which is essentially a transcript of a series of essays. And I forget the, uh, the, the, the guy who's the interviewer, but I think it's on the BBC and it's on television. And, and he has uh, first rate professional philosophers that come on and have these long conversations. And it's a television show, I think runs through the eighties. Um, I wish I could remember, but in any case, uh, yeah, that, that that public presentation, you know, first, you know, to care that much to, to air it to host it, um, but then to make that visible. Uh, I think that that would be fascinating to, to explore what happened, what went wrong and how that can be recovered. So yeah, consider yourself duly encouraged. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ben. Uh, really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us. It's been a pleasure.